Hello, Hardcore Finance Show listeners. Welcome back to another episode of the Hardcore Finance Show with uh, Shimon and Alex. Today, we have a very, very special guest, Tony Bradshaw. Tony Bradshaw, actually, we're going to talk about something pretty interesting today. Uh, we'll talk about choosing to be a millionaire, and I'm sure all of us would want to be millionaires or aspire to have financial freedom. Um, and Tony's made the millionaire choice when literally at the age of 25, and since then has helped himself, his family, and others uh, make the same choice and, and become wealthy, uh, fight for financial freedom. And so this is what Shimon and I stand for. And so we wanted to get Tony on the show and and pick his brain and, and see what we can learn from him. So Tony, welcome. Hey, thank you for having me on the show, guys. Really looking forward to it. Awesome. Well, why don't we start off with, you know, Obviously, tell us about a little bit about your story. It's pretty unique. You came from very humbling, uh, from a very humble background, and so uh, maybe let us let us know um, how you started. Yeah, you know, I think the interesting thing about kids is when you're living in the moment, your kids are so resilient, and so you don't really realize what you're living through or the situations you're in, and you just kind of learn to exist and and go through life and. And uh, that was kind of my case, you know. We were living in a lower yeah. income. My parents weren't weren't poor. Um, we were more of a, what I would call like lower income. So my mom, uh, you know, I think the most she ever made in her entire life was about thirty five grand. Uh, she did convenience store work. Um, at one time, she was managing three different convenience stores, which during that time was the most dangerous job in Nashville. And so uh, people were frequently robbed at gunpoint in the evenings. My mom was robbed at gunpoint probably around six times. Uh, one of which, you know, I I visibly saw how much it shook her up because the gentleman, if you could call him that, uh, came in with a 357 Magnum, which is a very large caliber gun, and stuck it on the end of her Jeez. nose. And uh, this is her working at you know one, two, or three o'clock in the morning, filling in for people that called in uh, out of work, and that was a common thing. Uh, she was frequently going up to the store at night, you know, at 2 a.m. with my dad to police the store to see if her employees were stealing. Uh, they would have people drive, employees' friends pull up, back up their cars, and just start loading cases of beer into the backs of these cars, and she would have to go on site and fire them immediately. And then she had just finished, you know, working maybe a 10- or 12-hour shift and fire this person and had to take their shift. And uh, that was, you know, when I was probably about, you know, five years, maybe up to uh, 15 or so, 20, you know, that that was my life. And, uh, you know, seeing that in the story, she, my, my mom worked extremely hard uh, for what we had and to help support. My dad, on the other hand, he was a hard worker, a carpenter. He was a machinist uh, at first. And, um, you know, I remember as a young age, you know, he had an alcoholism problem when I was very young. He got, you know, quit drinking, I think, when I was about six years old. But I remember going to uh, one of the, um, you know, they they were striking. The company worked for we worked for a company called Wright Industries, and I remember going down to the trash barrels that were burning uh, down on Davidson Street in Nashville, and uh, standing around the trash barrels with the men. And he did that for just a couple of weeks. He didn't really stay stay with that. He's like, you know, I got to feed my family, I got to support my family. So he had to do a job shift. So he didn't stick it out there, and he changed jobs, started doing carpentry work which he still does. He's 72 years old, still working full-time as a cabinet maker and uh, never really learned how to manage money. Neither one of my parents did. And, and so, you know, when you come from that background, that's what I also find with my show is, is that, you know, you kind of repeat what you're taught. And what I was taught was bad financial habits. You know, even though my parents worked really hard, they didn't know how to manage their money well and they didn't have anybody to teach them. 
So they had to learn how to do it themselves and they did the best they could. Um, you know, just a couple of stories. You know, I wasn't until I was older, but, you know, we had really nice Christmases. My mom and dad tried to overcompensate for what they didn't have as children. And it wasn't until later that I realized that the way we had those nice Christmases was that my mom, who had bad credit, was uh, using my grandmother's credit cards to finance Christmas for our family. And then she would pay those credit cards off for the next three to six months. And uh, that was part of the ritual. That was the family ritual, the family bad financial habits. And, and you know, I love that concept, you know, and I appreciate what my mom did for me, but it really wasn't good for her and for my dad's finances. So uh, spending a thousand dollars a piece on your two children for Christmas when you really are bouncing checks on an, you know, a monthly basis and uh, not paying your bills, it's not a good, a good plan or a good strategy. But, you know, that was the, the house I grew up in. Uh, There's a lot of other stories I could tell. The water would get cut off, the electricity would get cut off. And so small wonder when I'm 25 years old and, you know, got my first W-2 out of college and realized I made $39,000, but I was somehow $16,000 in debt. And and I didn't have a lot of expenses, guys. I was living at home with my parents in a studio bedroom apartment. And uh, when I got that W-2, I looked around and I'm like, wow, I'm paying $200 a month for room, board, you know, everything. Like that's all in. That's my, that's my living expenses for my house. Like I'm, I'm, I've got a good, I've got a good gig going here. Um, where did all my money go? And I looked around that bedroom apartment. My dad had made me a desk. My dad made a desk for me. I had uh, some really nice electronics. So I invested in a computer, which I financed. I bought a TV, stereo speakers, all with cash. I figured I'm going to get married someday. My wife's probably going to have nice furniture. I'll bring the nice electronics. And that was my plan. Uh, my bed was a $99 mattress uh, with posts and two-by-sixes that I had stained. You know, my dad's a woodworker, so I, I made my own bed. It wasn't even a very nice bed, probably maybe 100 bucks, 200 bucks in materials. And uh, that's, that's what I had to show for $39,000 of work for a year. And I'm like, this is terrible. You know, it just it just clicked for me really quickly that I could never do that again. Like, where did all this money go? And that's when I started learning how to manage money. I, I went to the bookstore, which is what I, I love to do is read. I went to college. I think the most important thing college teaches you is to learn. And once you develop a mindset of learning, then, you know, it kind of really unlocks the world's potential for you. Um, unfortunately, a lot of people don't learn anything new after they graduate high school. But I think that's a big, big key. And uh, and then, uh, you know, I'd like it, like you guys introduced me. I, that's when I like to say I made my millionaire choice. I'm like, you know, there's a before and after I was broke. I'm making a decision not to be broke anymore. I think I can become a millionaire. I think I can do that by age 40. And let me put that to action. And uh, and it didn't take long for me to figure that out. And, you know, I was armed with just enough of information to be dangerous and to get started. You know, it's funny you say this. I'll just, <clears throat> Shimon and I always talk about this, but our backgrounds are very, are very similar. And I know that, you know, uh, making money from me at least personally is – is more of a like it means more than I think to some other people. When when we first I we came to this country, my family did from the Ukraine. Shimon went through Israel for Bulgaria, um, but we came in the early '90s and we had nothing. It was all dead. My mom was a doctor in the former Soviet Union. My dad was an engineer, and he started doing menial jobs. And I remember when the first year, literally driving around with the car down alleys and seeing what people threw out so we can, you know, grab someone's couch or grab a used TV that's literally dumpster diving. 
that's where 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 I came from. So your story really resonates in terms of at some point you say, you know, I'm going to figure out how to make it um, and actually and actually try to make it and make this choice. And I like the way you frame the millionaire choice because as I, at least it came to me fairly late in life, call it in my mid thirties. But uh, maybe I'll start off with one question and then I'll hand it off to Shimon. But one thing that resonates with me, Tony, is this is a mindset, you know, and I call it thinking rich. Um, and, and really what it is, is, is thinking of, you know, before the thought was you work hard, you make money, like you said, and you save some for, you know, retirement or for a rainy day. And I, I think now that's wrong, right? I, I, I've changed my mindset. It's a mindset of I have time and that's what I can give the world. And how do I invest my time? And if I hold cash, I'm investing in cash. That's, an, that's a purposeful decision. If I have some things in savings, I am investing in a savings account. And I become, uh, I started thinking of myself as a capital allocator on a small scale. You know, you can, you can allocate your own $100, you can allocate your own $1,000, you can allocate your own million dollars, you can allocate a billion dollars, whatever net worth you are, but you're allocating money and time. Um, so I don't know if you talk about that at all. How, tell us a little bit about how do you switch the mindset, right? How, what does it mean to choose, you know, to think like a millionaire? Yeah, I, that's an interesting concept. I think it happens in, to different people in different ways. Uh, you know, you were talking about where you guys came from, and I'm, one more story that kind of came to mind for me. And I, I haven't really – this story was not in my book, and I didn't really uh, come back to memory until a few months ago. But, um, you know, I was 13, and one thing my parents did teach me, even though they didn't teach me how to, to manage money, they taught me how to work really hard. And so at 13, uh, I used to go around and dig through trash cans in uh, the surrounding blocks to dig in to get aluminum cans. And so I was aluminum cans uh, collector, and, uh, and then I would go sell the aluminum cans. I think at that time they were like 63 cents a pound or something like that. And, uh, and I would collect these aluminum cans, about 20 cans makes a pound. So you can imagine how many you had to dig up. But also, uh, I remember one specific instance when I was with a friend of mine and we were, were digging through these cans and found a maggot infested trash can full of, uh, these aluminum cans. These people have been drinking a lot. Like I'm talking, this was like a gold mine and, uh, he wasn't willing to go in there and do the work it took because the cans were so nasty. And I'm like, I'm, I'm in, I'm going to go grab these cans. And, and I made a big haul that day. I think I don't know, 50, 60 different cans, something, two, three pounds of aluminum. But when you talk about mindset, I think it's got to start with, you've got to start believing and wanting to make a change, right? So you have to go, you know, for me, it was, I can never, the math just worked, right? Math, uh, finance is really math. And and it's not very complicated math once you understand that. So I went to school for engineering. I wasn't the best student. I was a decent student. Uh, the math is not that hard when you start learning about compound interest and how to multiply your money. I like to say make, manage, and multiply your money. If you want to be good with money, you have to study money. You have to learn how money works. That's the simple principle. Everyone starts in the same place. Warren Buffett, one of the best investors of all time, he was not born – with a manual on how to learn how to invest. He didn't come out of there with a dictionary or an encyclopedia on investing principles. He had to learn how to do that. He had to make a choice to do that. Somebody may have pushed him in that direction. So like for me, I had to push myself in that direction. Warren Buffett, maybe somebody else pushed him depending on the pedigree he grew up with. 
Um, but your mindset has to shift, and that can come from two different ways. It can come from pain. So you can have a lot of pain that causes you to go, I can't live like this anymore. Dave Ramsey's great master of helping people do that. People go, I can't live in debt anymore. I can't pay my bills. I want to change. And they latch on to the vision that Dave Ramsey is presenting to them, which is a debt-free vision. So most people I find don't have a vision. They're not visionaries. They can't create a vision or they haven't learned how to create a vision for their own future. So, And that's fine because they can borrow somebody else's vision for their future. In Dave's case, he's giving them a vision of I can be debt-free. Like I can't imagine a world where I can be debt-free. Well, he tells them, hey, come along with us. Get into our tribe. We show millions of people how to become debt-free. You can do it too. And so people latch on to that. And they start becoming, they start on that journey of becoming debt free. And then along there, they learn some good financial principles. For me, I'm trying to get people to believe that they can become millionaires. And the reason I believe that is because I've done over 100 interviews now of people who grew up just like me, some in much worse condition. Like, uh, you know, um, Dr. Ming Wang out of Nashville, he grew up in a Chinese concentration camp. He spent three years as a teenager in a Chinese concentration camp. And he got out of camp and his parents, uh, helped him get into college. He had to study and he had to do basically four years of education in one year just so he could have a shot at going to college and getting to university. And he was able to do that. So four years compressed into one year, basically studying 18 years, 18 hours a day, uh, sleeping like six hours a day. That was his life for a year until he took the exam. So that was a mindset shift for him. Once he got out of that, uh, he was able – somebody counseled him and said, hey, you got to get to America. He came to America, became an ophthalmologist, uh, eye doctor, and and then you know the rest is history. He became a, became a millionaire. Uh, another guy named Jerry Feta grew – he was homeless at age eight, uh, homeless again after he got married at age 19. Imagine that, being six months married, homeless again, and then that's when he had his awakening moment. He's like, I can't live like this anymore. I've got to shift. I've got to make a mindset shift. I've got to change. And he became a financial advisor. Imagine that going from being homeless to becoming a financial advisor. And then a few years after that, uh, he shifted again. And then he was a multimillionaire at age 30. So a decade, about a decade for him, about 10 years for him to make the shift. For me, it was about 15 years. I find that it takes about 10 to 10 to 20 years on average from the people I talk to from the time they make that mental shift, whether it's caused by pain or is it caused by abundance? I call it a scarcity mindset shift or an abundance mindset shift. And but that's that's really the first you know pivotal moment that I think people have to go through to go from just living like you said saving or uh, just getting by. I call it uh, just getting by bucket. I'm sorry, four buckets. There's the broke bucket, financial bucket. There's the just getting by bucket, and then there's the future millionaire bucket, and then the millionaire bucket. There's also a billionaire bucket, but you know. That's for the greater people out there. Let's just let's stick with the four for now because that's more attainable for most Americans, I believe. Awesome. So I really like uh, this idea of having a long time horizon. So like thinking of 10 to 15 years, because like, yeah, you can't really plan for these things. There's no magical money that's just waiting for you. Even like, you know, Alex and I went to a really good business school. But even if you go to a really good business school, you have like, you know, debt, uh, student loans and then you know, you start working and then if you don't like prioritize the right things, you can find yourself in a situation that's not very good. So let me describe to you, uh, not the worst possible situation. Like that's actually a situation that most of our friends are in. 
you know, if you're like a professional, you know, let's say you have a mortgage, you have like some saving, maybe you max out your 401k and that's pretty much it. That's what's left after, uh, you know, you, you basically want to live a good lifestyle. You want to send your kids to a good daycare and so forth. So what would you say is wrong or, or is, is that the right way? I mean, I think technically you can become a millionaire if you max out your 401k, uh, but you know, and, and the mortgage, the problem with the mortgage that I've seen is that it's paper wealth, but like, unless you downsize afterwards, it's really hard to kind of realize that wealth. So what do you think is wrong with, with just normally, you know, paying your mortgage, maxing out your 401k and calling it a day? Well, I'm, I'm a big believer and I'm, I'm growing in this facet, right? So, um, I think money is a lifelong learning journey. So uh, some people stick with like one piece of training. They learn one thing and that's all they ever learn. So like uh, the, the model you just described is a uh, – I would call like a uh, non-engaged investor model. It's like, hey, I'm just going to put this money over here and I'm kind of done with it. And you know that's okay for people who – that's all they want to do. Call it like passive investing or something maybe where – the money, you're putting it aside, but you're not actively learning how it works. You're not learning how to maximize it, and you're essentially trusting somebody else with your money, which I don't agree with because no one cares more about your money than you. And I've seen plenty of people who will give their money to a financial advisor, and the financial advisor is typically going to stick it somewhere, not watch it, not take follow-up with it. He's going to have three or 400 clients. He's not going to talk to you annually, and your money's just going to sit over there. And the only time it's going to shift is if you decide to take a moment and go look at it and decide to do something different with it. Um, and and the reason I say that is because I did an audit of uh, for a company that I worked for. I did an audit on all of the investments that all of the 401k holders had inside of our company. Now, I couldn't look at the individual investments by person, but what I could do is look at them as an aggregate, and I could tell what everybody was invested in. Now, that was my role. I'm, I'm just an inquisitive guy. I like to study stuff. So I'm going, okay, if if we're working in this company and uh, we're helping people with money, um, sh shouldn't our people be getting a great result with their investments? And so I audited it, uh, the, the investments. I'm like, wow, it's like 50 60% of our people are invested in underperforming investments. Like why why is that? Like it should be higher. Like why if the if the norm in that time frame was about seven and a half to eight percent would have been peak for the time frame I was looking at, why are a lot of these investments in this four hundred one K performing at like three percent? You know, and that, that really bothered me. And then I, I looked and I just started pulling this thread and I'm going, that's the vast majority of people who are putting their money into four hundred one Ks. They're not getting premium high level investment returns on their investments. They're getting somewhere in between for the majority of people. And, and so when you expect to have this big nest egg at the end for your, uh, your 401k investment, for a lot of people, it's not going to happen because they're in the wrong investments in, even inside of their 401k. I like the idea of a 401k anytime you can double your money on the first investment, like you know the initial investment. Let's say your uh, employer matches 6%. Take the doubling the money. You just doubled it. So yeah, what if it doesn't perform at 20%, but it's still doubling on the front end, and the math works out pretty well, but you still have to watch it. Um, I'm a big believer these days that you have to look back over 2,000 to 3,000 years and ask this question. What has been wealth for 3,000 years? Three three things that have really been wealth for thousands of years, and that's the way I look at finance now. Uh, and those three things are uh, land and real estate, 
that has always been some form of money. The wealthiest people own lands and lots of lands, and they sharecropped it, and you can study that more. The second one will be gold and silver. Every dynasty, every country, every form of money, wealth was stored through gold and silver, and that goes back thousands of years. And so it's still true today, too. So when you look at, like, paper currencies go up and down, rise and fall, gold is the, the common denominator that bridges across currencies. And then lastly would be um, – business right if you own your own business you can produce revenue so you know where does your energy go it's producing revenue and i've really started to look at that more as a money-making system so when you look at a job you know you have uh, a, a money-making system that's kind of the lowest form of money-making systems right is getting go get a job you know you start selling lemonade lemonade stands or you start cutting yards with grass or you start babysitting you know those are kind of like the foundations but you can also evolve past that, and that's when you start to take your own income into your own power, right? So I made $39,000 my, my, on my first job out of college, but when you roll the clock back, my first actual job, I think I was making $3.35 an hour. And I was pulling weeds out of flower beds at the convenience store, which we mentioned earlier. I was painting curves. People would ding the curves with their tires. It would look trashy. And I would have to take out the trash and you know clean up the parking lot and all these things, which I hated. I hated that job. But th those are money-making systems, and then you can – you know, grow into that. I did not realize when I made $39,000 a year and I was making, you know, four grand more than my mom, I thought I had arrived. You know, I'm like, hey, man, I just got to this game. I'm 25 years old. Mom is 45 and I'm already making four or five grand more than her a year. I've, I am, I am it, man. I've got this figured out. What I didn't realize is where my full potential was, which is I never imagined coming from that low income background that I could make $100,000 a year. I never realized I could make a quarter million dollars a year. I never realized I could make $500,000 a year until I got there, right? And and the thing that's interesting about that and what I try to teach people is you're really only limited by what your own beliefs are in your own systems. Now, some people have different – have other difficulties, but you can find example after example after example of people who had tremendous hardships and things that they faced and challenges they faced, but yet they were able to do something that was actually incredible. So the, the I like to look at the examples of people who have gone before me and what they were able to accomplish to kind of create my belief system and where I can go. But those three forms, when you look at uh, cash, you know, the average fiat currency, which is what the U.S. dollar is today, it's it's just paper. Like I like to say it's fake money. It's fake. It's fake wealth because paper can burn. Right. Um, you know, stocks are the same way. So I, when I look at the equities market, um, I personally believe it's you guys may not agree with this, but this is me. I believe you can make money in paper. You can make money, uh, with stocks, but you ought to be, uh, thinking about it in such a way where you're diversifying out of the stock market as well. So if you're going to make money in the stock market, let's say, you know, the stock market was, uh, what, 38,000 just a few weeks ago, the Dow Jones. Now it's down, what, around 29,000. Uh, Peter Navarro is projecting it. Uh, last year he projected it to drop to 26,000. So when it, when you're having good times like that, doesn't it make sense to go, hey, I made some money over here. Let me diversify into a different asset class. Um, that's not something I was really taught or even thought about doing until you know the, probably the last decade, maybe last 10 years. And so I, when I think about using the paper system to build wealth or stocks, I then go, okay, at what point do I want to take my paper wealth and transfer it into what I call real world or tangible wealth, gold, silver, real estate, um, you know, even a business, those are all things that exist in the physical world. They're real world things. Equities, on the other hand, are stocks. 
that's paper wealth, and that can disappear. You know, just ask the people who were invested in Enron or, um, you know, 2000 when you had the dot-com bust. Um, I personally think we're in a time frame now that's, you know, you have to look back in history, you know, and I, and, and I like following uh, James Rickards uh, for some of that material and learning from him, and, and he's looking at that. But that, that's how I look at wealth today versus how I did even, you know, 20 years ago at 25. Um it was uh, at that point, all I really understood was stocks. And I learned a little bit about real estate. Funny story. I tried to talk my best friend into letting me buy a house and him renting from me. I was going to put him in as a renter, a long-term renter. And he, he didn't want to do that. He wanted to uh, go, go in as a co-owner, a co-investor. And I probably should have done it, but because of that, I just stopped it and just went with equities only. I just bought stocks. I didn't buy a real estate house at that time. Very cool. I mean, I think one thing that you mentioned is so, so important because it works at every level, which is like, it's, it's your belief system. So, uh, you know, both Alex and, and my parents, you know, mother's a doctor, father's an engineer. So we always grew up of like, you know, find a profession that you're really, really good at and just like, you know, work for somebody else. And that's how you become wealthy. But then like, as we started, uh, you know, learning more about business and stuff, it's like, no, actually that's, to your point, the lowest form of, it's like selling your time for a fixed amount. Uh, you know, in Silicon Valley, you have a little bit of a hybrid model that you get a lot of stock compensation uh, and options compensation. So it's a little bit of hybrid, but still even there, you get an insignificant uh, percentage of the company uh, versus owning uh, a company. Or, you know, when you talk about real estate, if you rent it out, it's almost like a company. It's a business that generates mm -hmm. yield. Now, you said one thing though that, that I wanted to uh, pull on. So you, you mentioned uh, stocks, uh, you know, they're not, they're different than real money, like owning a business or gold and silver. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Because like, from my perspective, if you don't pick a particular stock and you just pick the, the, the index, both gold and the stock market should be a function of GDP growth. Uh, but, but maybe I'm completely wrong. So I would love to hear your thoughts uh, to double click on that statement you made that, that stocks, you know, are, are different from like real world. Like yeah. So what I mean by that server. is, uh, let's let's say um, let's say something crazy happens. Let's let's roll the clock back. Like, and I've been studying this more recently, so I, I don't call me an authority on this at all. It's just me trying to. I'm an inquisitive guy. I like to learn. So a lot of the guys is financial advisors, stock guys that are big proponents. Uh, I won't mention a whole lot of names here, but um, they look at it and they always talk about, oh, the the uh, stock market has grown by an average of nine and a half percent, depending on who you talk to, or 10 and a half percent over a hundred years. What they don't tell you is that there have been two periods of that hundred years where the stock market didn't see any growth for 30 years. And that was the Great Depression uh, from 1920 to 1950. And so if you were in the market and it dumped, you didn't get your money back for 30 years. Most people at that time frame we're going to be dead before they got their money back. All right. So think about a 30 year period. If you're 30 years old, you're going to be 60 before your money recovers. If you're 60, you're going to be 90. The average age uh, of an American used to be 82, I think for men, 87 for women. That number is down now down like I think uh, eight, at least eight years lower. It's in the 70s. Okay. In the last, last 20 years, it's dropped quite a bit. I won't go into that. Um, and that's the one everybody goes, oh, Great Depression, Great Depression. Well, you know what? If you look at 1970s, you have another 20 to 30-year period where 
the stock market didn't grow. It didn't see any real growth. Now, you can get into dollar cost averaging and stuff like that if you want to. And you can say, oh, you're supposed to always invest in the market on a regular basis. That's a standard investment strategy for a 401k, right? Just keep putting it in, keep putting it in, keep putting it in, keep putting it in. But for somebody that got to a certain point, and I've, and I've got somebody I coached the other day, and they're like, should I leave my money in or should I take it out? Guy's 65 years old. What if it goes from 38? Not down to uh, not down to twenty six like Peter Navarro said. What if it drops to sixteen, which is really just six years ago? Six years ago, the stock market was about sixteen thousand, seventeen thousand. That was the handover from Trump from uh, Obama to Trump. That's a massive loss in wealth. And uh, depending on how you're invested, you know, if it's in mutual funds, which I think was what you're leaning toward, you are diversified, but you're still in that same equity class. You're still in that class. And you know, when you look at the Dow Jones right now this year. They say, what is it, the worst performing uh, year in the history of the Dow Jones, I think is maybe what I've heard a couple times. Um, everything's red. Almost everything's red. I'll, I'll, there's probably a few green ones out there, but the ones, I, the graphs I always see, they always pick all the red ones, right? So that's a thing to consider. Now, when you look at the stock market right now and you go, okay, I saw a thing the other day said that shipments across the Pacific, this is ships carrying stuff across the Pacific, down something like 75% right now. What do you think that represents going into next year? You got gas prices. I'm a big believer that uh, the gas price, when you look at the gas price going from $2 a gallon to what was it, four here in where I'm at, it got up to four. Uh, now it's down around 330, which they're going, woo, the gas price is down. Um, that sucks an enormous amount of money out of the, 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 the market. So when people can't pay their bills, can't pay their rent, that money comes out. That is a contributor to the stock market going down, one of the contributors, right? So if disposable income's down, people can't pay their bills, pay their, what are they going to do? They're going to go cut their investing. They're going to cut their 401k contributions. They're going to cut all this stuff just to make ends meet, right? Just to keep food on the table for the kids and the family. That's where the economy's at right now, in my opinion. And, and so your original question was uh, real money versus fake money, real investment versus fake. I like the idea of you have to understand that market and how the market works. You have to understand the system. And that's, I'm a systems guy. And so that makes a lot of sense to me to go, hey, there's a system. We are playing inside of a system, and that system is set up to operate a certain way. Now, they talk – you've heard – I'm sure you guys have heard uh, the rich keep getting richer and the poor keep getting poorer. Why is that? The rich understand – the really rich ones. I'm not talking about guys like me with you know a few million dollars. I'm talking about the really rich guys. They understand the system. They understand the seasons of the system. They understand – uh, the market flows. They understood those guys. A lot of them knew that the Great Depression was coming. The same thing for the guys in 2008. There were a lot of people that knew it was coming, and and they profited through that. They, you know, even right now when the market's up or down, you'll hear them say all the time, "Oh, these uh, I forget what eight billionaires or ten billionaires, their net worth went up like thirty percent." You know, and and those are crazy numbers. But but you have to understand that system, and the more you understand that system, the more you can take advantage of that system. And uh, I'm a big believer in that. Um, I think we're in a system trans transition right now, which is a really big deal. And people, the more people understand that, the better off they're going to be. So there's a lot of a lot of threads to pull on here. Um, I want to go to our usual one because it's interesting to take different guest perspectives. 
So you mentioned the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. I want to distill a couple of topics down for our audience. So one is hard money versus fiat, or as you call it, fake money. And this Shimon and I talk about this a lot, although we take a slightly different perspective than you. And so for us, we, we are believers in hard money. We uh, try to educate uh, our audience about the fact that, you know, what rises in fiat terms, just because the value of something increases, doesn't mean your wealth increases or your spending power increases. And there are very few things actually that have been able to preserve store value, have been able to preserve your spending power. Um, we can argue also different inflection points in the market. You know, a big inflection point for Austrian economists or hard money, uh, hard money errors, if you will, is 1971 when the U.S. went off the gold standard. Another big inflection point is dot com bust. A third one is a great financial crisis that's very relevant for now because of all the money printing that's been going on. I, I think I have kind of, you know, uh, one question here and then the second I want to follow up with is when we think about the economy, right, and you talked about the system, a lot of, a lot of the increase in wealth, the rich are getting richer, are because of money printing or essentially debasing of the currency. So we print more U.S. dollars, there are less of them, or there are more of them available, more of them go into financial instruments because they're rich. Even, you know, guys like you, guys, you know, folks like us, and obviously higher, the rich own assets, they own real assets, mm -hmm. real estate, gold, commodities. You know, Shimon and I are very big uh, believers in crypto as a substitute for gold. But without going into crypto or not, people, you know, rich, uh, people who think rich own assets. They, they put their money, they trade in dollars for assets. Be a business, right? It kicks off cash flows, your own or someone else. Do you, how do you see this period, period in time where, look, we've printed a lot of money. Uh, we've seen a huge run up post COVID, a huge drawdown after COVID. Are you in the, we're, we're hitting, we're clearly hitting a debt bubble, right? Uh, the, the bond market doesn't have as much liquidity. The largest sell-off of bonds, and I think the fourth largest in history ever. I'm talking about the Civil War dating back there. Do you, are you in the bear camp of, hey, we're going lower? You talked about S&P being at 36, going down to 16 potentially. Or are you in the bull camp of, hey, we have so much debt at Fed, the Federal Reserve has to pivot um, sometime before the system breaks. And then I have a second follow-on again about um, overall investing. All right. I'll see if I can walk you through this because I've thought about how to, you know, my opinion. And I, and I hope I answered your question earlier, Shimon. I think you were asking me. I don't know if I got an answer. So if you want to go back to it, I'll try it again. Is, is, is what you're seeing done right now stupid? By the financial guys, when you say the Federal Reserve or the government or like it's is it stupid when the government is thirty two trillion dollars in debt rapidly going even more. They're sending money overseas by the tens and hundreds of billions of dollars and not taking care of basic things in the United States that need to be taken care of, like education, for example, uh, all the problems that we're facing. And they're not making a single effort to fix any of them. Is that stupid? Because you have to ask a question. When you look at the government and go, I, I, is, are they stupid 
Because that's what you hear some people say, oh, these guys are stupid. They're making all these mistakes, right? There's only two possibilities. Either they're, they're, either they're really that stupid or they're intentionally doing it all. That's your only two options. And I, I, I don't, don't they're stupid. <laughs> I don't I believe they're stupid. I yeah, don't they're believe they're stupid. Their, their debt. So, so Alex and I, we have a thesis, which is basically at the global levels of debt to GDP, they will have to print money in order to uh, devalue the value of the debt, because otherwise, if they go the austerity route, they will be replaced in elections. Yeah, but that's our thesis. I don't know if you have a similar one. Well, I have a different thesis <laughs> or hypothesis, if you want to say, and it'll be proven out. And uh, well, I don't know if you're <laughs> – I can tell you, but I'm not sure if uh, your listeners will accept it. But uh, but here's the thing. Um, no, I, I look I look bigger picture, okay, and I look at what they're doing as ridiculously irresponsible, ridiculously stupid. Um. When I say stupid, it's it's stupid because it doesn't help people, but it's it's intentionally done, and it's and so according to them, it's a great plan, right? And this is going to sound wild, but when you look at this, the what I see happening is a devolving or a devolution of the U.S. and Western society and economy. When you look at it, so when you go, there's a broken financial system. If you rewind the clock to the Great Depression, what really happened at the Great Depression? You had 10% of the American population passed away, you know, supposedly due to Spanish flu. Went from 100 million people to 10 to uh, 90 million people over its period of time. So a, a, a decrease in American population. You had um, a financial implosion, and out of that financial implosion came at that time the largest financial shift in American history. At that time, you had the IRS was formalized, you know, as a name and an entity. You had uh, Social Security was implemented, you know, the Great New Deal. You had uh, um, the uh, Social Security Administration. I said that Federal Reserve. Oh, Federal Reserve was formed, so you had a centralized bank. All that came in right around that time, and you had gold confiscation. Right, so you had FDR uh, made it illegal to own gold, and so he bought it. I forget what it was. I thought it was twenty eight dollars an ounce. He bought it for, and then he re repositioned the price at thirty three once he collected everything he could from the citizens. So you had something that was illegal for American citizens to own. Now here we are, almost a hundred years later, almost exactly a hundred years later, and I think you're seeing another pivot, financial pivot, and it's not an accident. Like when people go, "Oh, it's all these mistakes, all these things." No, no, no. This is a plan, and it's planned to create a financial shift in the way finance works, and and also wealth. So when you look at uh, when you look at uh, Bill Gates, right? I'm sure you guys have heard this. Bill Gates is the largest private farmland owner in America right now. I think he's coming up on 300,000 acres now. Okay, Jeff Bezos. Last I checked, 350,000 acres. Uh, number, I think he was like number 35 or something on the largest private. Landowners, not farmland, but land in general. Uh, Warren Buffett was shifting a lot of assets uh, away from market kind of equities and buying like, railroads. He was buying hard assets, infrastructure. That's what he was investing in. Um, so you're seeing a lot of these kinds of things happen. You're seeing like just weird stuff like, you know, gasoline, right? Uh, Gavin Newsom making it illegal. To uh, own gas cars or something ridiculous like he's in in the future. I think by 2030 they're trying to like get rid of all sold like gasoline cars out there, and they're only like electric only or something ridiculous. Um, 
And then he tells people, hey, you need to cut your air conditioner down because we don't have enough electricity for you to run air conditioner. Like, yeah, but how are you going to start running cars? So you're seeing all these weird pivots and things that are going on. And the, the, the only thing that I feel like we have to compare it to is you've got to roll back all the way to the Great Depression. Go, There's a huge financial shift going on. And, and that was intentionally done. We don't have time to go into that, but you could do some reading on it. A lot, of, a lot of great stuff. I think one of my favorite books out there, I think everybody should read it. I recommend it to everybody I coach, The Creature from Jekyll Island by G. Edward Griffin. Um, he does a wonderful job of going back and looking at the founding of the Federal Reserve Bank and the people behind it. It's a fantastic book. I couldn't get through it in paperback, so I'm doing it on an audio book. It's a 20-hour audio book, if that tells you how much detail is in that book. It's a big audio book. So lots of material, but if you go back and go through that book, you can understand the system better and you can understand better of what we're about to go through. I think James Rickards is another good ask, a good look at that. Um, so Alex, back to your question. Um, re remind me of your question so I can make sure I answer it specifically and not talk in a big, you know, too big of a picture here. Well, I actually, I want to pivot. You, you said what, what we're about to go through. What are we about to go through? I think you're looking at a complete uh, overhaul, a financial meltdown. I personally think that. Now, I don't know exactly what that's going to look like. Uh, you know, James Rickards, uh, of, uh, he's got a book I love. It's called uh, The Death of Money, another book called Road to Ruin. I just picked up his latest book called uh, The New Great Depression. So this, I'm just starting to read this book. Uh, I don't know exactly what's in it, but I can expect – you know, what's, what's kind of in there. And I heard him talking to Robert Kiyosaki the other day on YouTube, uh, covering a lot of this material, right? So you have people, and I think this is throughout history. So, you know, it's not conspiracy because it's, it's patterns of history, which is this, the people in power always want a couple more things, more control, more power, wealth and money, give them access to that control power. That is historically the same. I don't care where you're at in the world. Even on a microcosm scale, right? If you're working in a company, you got people climbing the corporate ladder. They want more control, more power, right? Same thing happens, uh, you know. Even if you're in a home, right? You got a, a, a husband or maybe a wife. They want more control, more power over the family. That that's that's human nature, and I think we're seeing that play out on a macro scale uh, worldwide. And the question is, what what is the fallout and implications of that going to be? Uh, for the United States, you know, I personally think you're going to see uh, the market continue to drop. I see the signs of that. Retailers are going through layoffs. Q4 is going to be uh, is going to tell the tale for 2023. You're going to see you're already seeing retailers go massive layoffs are coming. You can find those news articles. They're everywhere. Uh, like I said before, shipments across the Pacific going back and forth to China down 75 percent. Uh, you're seeing all of this stuff, gas prices after the election, mark my words, the gas prices are going to go up and they're going to, I personally think they're going to go up a lot higher than we've seen already. And when that takes even more money out, it's going to be more of a problem. And, uh, you, you mentioned you guys are immigrants. So I just saw a chart the other day talking about gas prices and fuel prices over in Europe right now. And, uh, from what I understand in the Ukraine, which I think Alex is where you're from, uh, I saw a thing says like, was it like 61 euros a barrel or something like that for oil? And you just go over into Germany or France or anywhere, and it's like 10 times that. So you're talking about people who are cutting down trees now because they can't afford to, to, to heat their homes this winter. Uh, that's causing an economic shift. Why are all these things happening? And that's because when people are comfortable, you can't create change. 
in the system. But when people are in pain, we talked about that earlier, right? Uh, what's what's drives change? When people are in pain, like bad pain, I'm talking about just a little bit. I'm talking about massive pain. I can't put food on the table. I can't feed my family. I can't do this. I can't do that. Like what's going on? There's a problem. They will readily accept massive change to the system. That's what we're going to be walking into. That's what we're going to be going into for 2023 and probably for the next decade. I'm sure you guys have seen, uh, I think it's UN Agenda 2030. They've got a bunch of stuff. This is World Economic Forum stuff. You know, These are the people that believe they're running the planet, right? Uh, International Monetary Fund, United Nations, World Economic Forum, Council of Foreign Relations, the CFR, it's a U.S. body or institution. But uh, those are those are kinds of things. And, and I'm not an expert on all this stuff, man. I'm just learning about it. Uh, just like I feel like I'm – you know, 2025 or when I was 25 years old, I was learning about money. Now I'm learning about global finance on an epic scale and uh, how these guys are basically, um, I hate to say it, making everybody's lives miserable. I think I'm a big believer. I mean, if you let me humor me just a minute, I want to create a world where there's only two types of people. Millionaires and future millionaires. That's what I want to create. That's the vision I see for the future. Um, I want to create a world where the day a child is born in the hospital, they get an investment fund. They start investing the day they're born. That's the kind of world I create. I want to create because I know that if we do that, if we adopt a world like that, then that child's going to be a multimillionaire in their 60s. If they don't do another thing for the rest of their lives and we just do that one thing, I'm going to give you a number here because I ran the math on this. Okay, How, mi- how much do you think it would take? to create a $10,000 investment for every child in America the year they're born, let's say 2022. You guys want to take a guess? I'm going to put the Jeopardy music. $40 billion. $40 billion. That's not a big number. $40 billion to do a $10,000 investment to turn every child in America for 2022 into multimillionaires at retirement. You know why they don't want to do that? It's a very simple reason. So get this. The cost, you know what the cost of the Iraq war was? I'm sorry, the Afghanistan war was for one year? $40 billion. So for one war, $40 billion. App, Apple profits, profits from Apple. One U.S. company, one U.S. company for one year could fund turning every child in America into wealthy individuals. And what does that change in the system though? They don't want people don't want that change. They don't want people to be wealthy. They don't want that freedom because wealth brings freedom and they wouldn't have student loan debts. Think about it. you think you think grandma is going to let little Johnny go to school with student loan debt when she's a multimillionaire? It's not going to happen. So you see the system the system we have now in my opinion is a slavery based system it's a slavery designed system why aren't you know america has 40% of the world's millionaires that's a huge number we only have about 3% of the world's population 4% of the world's 40% of the world's millionaires 3% of the population so i see a lot of i see a, an opportunity for good change to the system right now coming but i think the people that have control are trying to bring in bad change um, you guys mentioned cryptocurrency earlier. I love crypto. I think it's pretty cool. But I'm going to tell you, when every form of money in the world exists and is a one or a zero, in my mind, that is the highest form of centralization you could possibly have of currency. When everything, every money, the things we handle is a digit, as a one or a zero, 
And 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 I so I see uh, that has potential good things, but also has potential bad things. And you're starting to see it already, right? Uh, there's like 51 countries now are trying to introduce uh, central bank digital currencies, so CBDCs, uh, for the globe. Um, and we could go down that road and talk about. I got some thoughts on crypto, uh, but I am a crypto investor. I bought my first crypto in 2017, so I I've made a little and lost a lot. <laughs> I'm down. That's awesome. So, Tony, uh, yeah, I just wanted to say there's so many threads to pull on here that we will have to have you on uh, again as a guest. But uh, just to wrap things up a little bit, because uh, we're hitting our time limit, let's say people are fully bought on uh, to your thesis. What would you advise them to do to protect themselves um, from this crisis? And uh, you know, both to protect their current wealth, but also how would you advise them to create wealth during this uh, crisis? Because I remember reading that basically every crisis is a huge opportunity, huge uh, fortunes were made in the Great Depression. Actually, if you had buried your gold uh, before the Great Depression and just like sat on it uh, until it was tradable again in the 70s, uh, you, you would have done really well for yourself. So uh, just curious to hear your thoughts on those two uh, items. Yeah, that's great. I think um, right now, uh, as always, I think there's some core principles that always apply to everybody. One, um, just like you studied math, English, and science in school uh, for 12 years, right, from K through 12, um, actually 13 if you count kindergarten, uh, you need to develop a habit of learning about money and you need to learn as much as you can. Like always do something every week, every month, every year to learn something new about money. Uh, that would be a number one. Number two, uh, get around people that are going where you want to go. If you want to be a millionaire, find some millionaires to hang out with. Like go get with the right people. Uh, I wish I had done that. I figured out everything on my own and then just did it. I was a loner. Um, I made a lot of mistakes doing it that way. If I had gotten in with a nice group, whether that's an online group we have digital today or getting with people, you're going to learn more from running with a group, a pack of wolves, than you will – um, on your own. And, uh, and that's, those are two big ones. Another big one that I would look at, uh, that I started doing, um, more recently in the last four years or so is I would look at a self-directed IRA because a self-directed IRA is going to give you a lot more options to do your investments. So if you're competent now, don't take risks if you're, you know, if you're not a competent investor, but if you are ready to take a little bit of risk and go, okay, instead of putting all my money into the market right now, which may dump, uh, continue to go down. Let me try to buy some different investments with my money. Let me let me take my retirement funds, my simple IRA, and start looking at some different opportunities. Um, one thing would be real estate. A lot of people think you got to have a lot of money to get in real estate. You don't have to have a lot of money to get in real estate. There's a lot of opportunities to get out there. Um, you can get into a REIT. You can do real estate investment trust. You can do uh, syndicated real estate. You can do joint ownership of real estate. Uh, I just heard recently Jeff Bezos has a new fund that you know goes out and buys properties, and people are buying into this uh, this fund that is a real estate based fund. Like they're buying up land, like we talked about earlier, land, gold, and silver. Uh, why are people buying these hard assets? And that's because they'll have money. If a system melts down, and implodes, it's still going to have some intrinsic value. Um, now, I don't believe that gold and silver is a good investment over your, the, the long haul. You could make money, you could make more money through real estate or more money in equities at certain periods of time. But in this season, in this transition, in the things that are going on in the world, I think gold and silver are really good investments. Um, silver, especially, 
Um, silver and don't buy paper silver in my opinion. I can't give you advice, but I don't buy paper paper silver. I buy real silver rounds or bars. The reason I do that is because paper silver is committed to like getting silver that isn't even harvested yet out of the ground. It's a contract, right? So don't buy that again. That's fake money. That's fake uh, fake property. You want real property, and so uh, and it's portable, right? So if something happens in your local area, um, you can pick it up and move it. You don't have, it's not locked down digitally, right? So somebody can't just shut you down or take it away. So that, that's what I would do. Uh, the, the self-directed IRAs, there's a lot of people out there that do those, uh, but you can buy real estate, you can buy gold, silver, you can buy crypto. You can do a lot of different things inside of a self-directed IRA. Um, and I personally don't have any money in the market right now. I have money in a uh, venture capital uh, stock that I'm working with and then, uh, you know, gold, silver, real estate and some crypto. You know, I've got money tied up in crypto. Those, that's where my money's at right now. The, uh, the, the, it, the, the wages have to go up. I think if the, if, the, if the prices don't come down, the wages have to rise. Uh, for example, you know, fast food used to pay 6 bucks an hour. Fast food around here is paying $17 an hour now. Um, so you're seeing an equalization a little bit of that inflation rate and the and the wages kind of, you know, that chicken before the egg kind of thing. Tony, we're going to have to wrap, but I, uh, I want to do, I want to get a commitment before we let you go. You got to come back. We need to talk about crypto because you talked about CBDC, central bank digital currencies. We are, we're also not fans of them. And I think it's important to explain to our audience why. Although they're going to be a great on-ramp to crypto for the whole world. So it's like um, I'm a fan because of that and not a fan because of what they are versus, uh, you know, Shimon and I are pretty big into Bitcoin specifically. Uh, Shimon more than me, but oh, versus all the other cryptos because of the properties that it has and the decentralization matters. Um, but let's wrap. So. I guess two questions, one to wrap, one, will you come back? You have to answer if you will come back and we can do the, we can do a whole gold crypto versus silver and commodities episode. Cause I think this is a great uh, place to, to jump off from. Uh, if people want to get in contact with you and want to become, uh, want to make the choice to become a millionaire, how do they do that? Yeah, so there's two places you can get in contact with me. Uh, obviously, TonyBradshaw.com. You can find some of the things I do out there. Um, I do a lot of my work off the MillionaireChoice.com. That's the MillionaireChoice.com. I have a thing called uh, the Wealth Builders Toolbox, which you mentioned books. I have a reading list there. It's kind of like a starter reading list that I recommend people get into. You know, I mentioned a few of those books today, um, just to get people started. You know, if you read 12 books, uh, you're pretty much a uh, way ahead of the game over most people on the planet uh, when it comes to finances. So commit to reading at least 12 books and then there's other ways to learn. Um, and I love one thing I love doing is I love giving away uh, an hour of free coaching a day to people. So I have a, a site that you can register. It's at themillionairechoice.com. You can book a free coaching session with me. I set aside one hour a day because I'm a big believer that if I just spend one hour with somebody, I can change the trajectory of their life. And uh, that's why I give that away. I, I, I like to think I'm going to do that for the rest of my life, but uh, you know, I'm doing it right now. So maybe I'll, maybe I'll do it for the rest of my life. Maybe I won't, but I do enjoy it. And you know, I get calls from all over the planet. Uh, people from Jamaica, Boston, you know, different areas, England. And uh, it's a lot of fun helping people, you know, make that millionaire choice and start creating their millionaire plan. Well, fantastic. Look, thank you so much for coming on the show. We got to have you back. Uh, Shewan, any last words from you? 
Yeah, no, I really enjoyed this interview because it goes uh, pretty contrary to a lot of uh, what we've been talking about. And this is exactly the point of the show. So really, really to think about what would happen if, if it would take 30 years, you know, for the stock market to get back to where it was at the peak. Uh, I think it's a question that anyone should ask themselves. And I completely agree in, in terms of just like educating, uh, you know, I, I know some really, really smart people that don't know anything about money. Um, you know, they're just very good at their profession. So thank you for everything that you're doing. And uh, yeah, I would love to have you uh, on again. Yeah, I look forward to it, guys. Just let me know when. <laughs>